Hey, welcome to Home Office, Huddle's first podcast. And I'm Mark Legere, Huddle's editor. And I'm Sharice Latson, Huddle's associate editor. Sharice, I'm very excited. This is our first podcast and our first episode of our first podcast. I know. It's been a long time coming. We've been talking about this for a really long time. And it's it's kind of uh, weird that it's, you know, it takes a pandemic to us for us to finally do this. But here we are. <laughs> And just across the street from each other, uh, our original plan is that Sharice and I would probably be sitting across from a table talking to each other during this first uh, first episode, but we're actually across the street from each other in uh, the south end of St. John. And if I looked at my window now, I could wave and, and Sharice would be across the street in her house. Yeah. I got to say that I, I miss you, man. I miss you. Um, I really am. You know, I know we have technology and stuff, but uh, I miss being in the office with you guys. I got to say. Yeah, no, and then actually Sharice and I were uh, on a chat program we had through work today and we were all, uh, we all started chatting uh, just about the isolation that we all feel. Um, Sharice is in a different situation than me because I actually have uh, two, uh, two young kids at home with me and my wife and uh, I could, <laughs> I'm at the point where I'm probably thinking I need a little break and you, you Sharice, you're probably thinking like you need more company. Yeah, like you probably are wanting the isolation right now. I'm just over here across the street with my cat. It's just us two. Um, just trying to get through this. <laughs> yeah. Well, we do play a game of basketball at lunchtime every day, Sharice, in the front yard. So you can always, if you see us out there shooting hoops, you can always come over and stand six feet away and, and shoot some hoops with us. I'm All right. I'm into that. I might take you up on that for sure. <laughs> So I guess speaking of, you know, working from home and uh, all this craziness going on, I guess, can you tell our listeners about what what's the show about? Okay. Well, you know, originally when we were thinking about, you know, launching uh, this first, you know, Huddle podcast, um, it, it was before, you know, the, the coronavirus crisis set in before COVID-19. Um, but once, once um, you know, we the social distancing uh, started to take place, and and uh, and we all started to take you know the right the right measures to try and get through all this. Um, you know, Sharice and I and, and Tyler McLean, who's also involved in producing this podcast, we got we got to talking about what we could launch during this time, and uh, we hit upon the name uh, you know home office, uh, playing a kind of the idea of head office, where we would have these conversations with. With, you know, with business leaders, um, with economists uh, about, uh, you know, the economy now and, and how people are doing in their businesses and in their personal lives and, and, uh, and navigating our way through this period. Um, you know, thinking about this podcast, you know, we're, we're not sure if the name Home Office and the concept will kind of survive uh, the crisis. And, you know, uh, for these first, uh, this first series of episodes, we've, we we're calling it Home Office and and thinking along those lines and in, in terms of a theme and, and, you know, we'll see where we go with it. Yeah, man. All good things got to start somewhere, right? They do. So who are our first guests? Well, our first guests are uh, uh, David Alston and uh, Marcel Lebrun, and they are, uh, you know, very well-known uh, tech entrepreneurs in, in New Brunswick and, and around Atlanta, Canada and Canada. Generally, they were, they were executives uh, on the ground floor of, of the um, startup Radiant 6 that eventually sold to uh, Salesforce. Um, and they've gone on to, you know, uh, take their own careers in, in different directions. Uh, but at the heart, uh, you know, Marcel and David are, you know, they're social entrepreneurs. 
their investors. They they sit on boards. They you know they lead community based you know activities. Um, they both have actually outdoor oriented um, you know businesses uh, and organizations. Uh, David runs a business called Timber Top uh, that it's kind of like. Um, one of those businesses, Sharice, where, you know, people uh, go on kind of obstacle courses uh, yes. through through forests, through the trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, Huddle has actually written about David and, and that venture. And uh, and Marcel runs, uh, operates um, uh, a kid's camp, you know, called Snyder Mountain. I did not know uh, that. They, yeah, he, he does. It's one of, it's one of his projects. Uh, Marcel, when I, you'll find out when you listen to the interview that I did with David and Marcel. Uh, but when I asked, uh, Marcel to, you know, you know, list the various things that he was involved in right now and how he was managing them during, um, managing it during COVID-19, the coronavirus crisis, uh, I was actually surprised to learn at his range of activities. Um, cause again, we do tend to think of David and Marcel in the context of Radiant 6 and Salesforce, um, and, uh, because that was such a, uh, you know, a prominent company in New Brunswick and, and that sale to Salesforce uh, based out of San Francisco was such a major, major deal for this region. Uh, but these guys have continued to be very active uh, since then, both as entrepreneurs and guys involved in their communities. And uh, um, so the, the context of this, this article was them, the, these series of articles that they actually wrote for Huddle, David reached out to me late last week uh, about it, asking if we'd be interested in publishing them, is David and Marcel got together and because they had been, uh, you know, texting back and forth each other, having conversations with each other about how the province and the region could kind of navigate its way through the coronavirus crisis. Now, they look Mm -hmm. at it from a public health point of view and they look at it from an economic point of view as business leaders. Uh, But what they saw was... um, you know, a lot of coverage of, of the coronavirus crisis kind of day to day, but they really felt um, that there was a need for a bigger public conversation about where where we were headed with this. You know, when are we going to start reopening things and what was going to be the basis for that, you know, decision to start reopening things. And they took very the very gutsy step in my mind of actually putting their pens to paper together. Um, because this is a tricky conversation for us to have, Sharice, around, so when is it going to be the right time? Um, mm-hmm. And when it is the right time, how are we going to start reopening things? And, uh, you know, it, as you'll hear in, in the interview I did with them, uh, you know, neither man, uh, you know, claims to be experts in this. They, you know, they understand that the public health authorities are, are, are the right people to trust on when we can decide to, to open things up. And, you know, and then the political leaders, uh, you know, the premier and, and, and his, uh, you know, committee on the coronavirus will be making the decisions on a plan itself and, and how to open things up. Uh, but these guys made a great, great contribution by, as I said, putting their pens to paper and reaching out to us and asking us to publish these pieces. Um, I, mean, I can tell you, Sharice, I know because you've, you've, you've heard about my excitement over the last several days. Right. Uh, yep. These are very policy-oriented stories that he they wrote, uh, but they they caught fire, right? Like we we're I haven't checked, but we're we're approaching a hundred thousand page views on both of these stories. No which, way, which is yeah, is a lot for for any publication in New Brunswick. To be frank, right? It's not a very big province. It's seven hundred fifty thousand people. Uh, if you look at the adult population in there, it's it's quite a bit smaller. So. 
this these pieces have been read by a lot of people on this province, uh, and uh, and and so we want we thought who better for the first episode of this new you know podcast home office than to bring these two guys on and and have a, a deeper conversation about how they you know were inspired to write these pieces and and what they've heard from the public you know in general and and from you know, thought leaders and business leaders on, uh, on, on their ideas on, on how to things, how to open things up and when. Right. Right. Well, this sounds like a super engaging and interesting conversation. So why don't we just hop right into it? Absolutely. Good afternoon, guys. Thanks for joining me. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to start by kind of situate, situating at all three of us here. Cause I know, um, we, uh, we called this show and, and the name made, May change in time, but we're we're calling this show Home Office as a kind of uh, play on head office because a, a, a lot of us uh, during this time are working out of our homes, and I know that's the case with me right now. I'm actually um, sitting in my uh, sitting room that's been converted into my office, and I'm really hoping and uh, that uh, a, a nine year old and eleven year old aren't going to come crashing into the room here, which they could at any moment, guys. So. I, I apologize if they do and join our podcast. Uh, David uh, discovered this uh, the other night. We were chatting on a, on a Friday night and uh, Ella came, you know, crashing through the door, insisting I come out and play a game of basketball. And she didn't, she actually didn't give up until um, I essentially hung up on David. So <laughs> thanks, David, for your patience on okay. Friday night. Yeah. So, and I, my, our situation here is uh, my wife, Janet and I, we both uh, have, we're very, very fortunate that we have the kind of jobs uh, that we can, we could just take home when all of this started. Uh, so we have, uh, you know, we both, like I said before, set up uh, offices in the house and the kids have actually created their own makeshift offices. I have uh, a 10 year old Jack and nine year, uh, nine year old, uh, sorry, an 11 year old Jack now and a nine year old Ella. And they've created their their own offices uh, upstairs in our house. Uh, one in his bedroom, and Ella in our uh, our kitchen upstairs. Uh, and they're sort of continuing on. And that, they've actually been amazing. They've, you know, we've had our our moments with them um, over the last few weeks. Uh, as I'm sure you guys could uh, probably in your own life, you've had similar situations. But we've had to uh, contain things. But for the most part, they've been they've been great. They kind of like do their their school days, and we do our work days, and. We come together at lunch and eat together and play basketball, and then we all get back to work. Um, so it's it's actually been uh, it's actually been really good so far on and on week five. Well, my wife, my so, wife and I say we we have three adult kids. So there's five of us in this house, and uh, I just can't imagine having little ones. So I, I know that would be a lot more work to be looking after entertaining them, but. Um, my, my three find their own way and I don't even know where they are half the time, but they're in some corner of the house. And, uh, we're looking at some old, uh, videos. That was one project we started tackling, uh, amongst going through old photos and creating, uh, like trips, uh, albums or whatever that you could print is another thing we were doing, but going through the old, uh, the videos that I dug out and started digitizing, I could see how active the kids were when they were younger. So, uh. Kudos to you and Janet for uh, trying to juggle all this and working from home. So, so who do you have in your house right now, David? Who's home with you? Well, we have two of the three. They're all at. We have all adult kids as well, so they're all roughly almost the same ages as Marcel's kids. So, um, but uh, two are based here, 
right now. And, uh, yeah, they, they, uh, we've got a, I'm in the upstairs spare bedroom slash office and they have an office downstairs. So I, uh, I tried to pick the, the quietest place I could knowing that the dog could also start to, uh, try to t- chew the leg off of a UPS delivery man or whatever coming to the door. So I didn't want to be anywhere near a barking dog. So, so we all kind of gone off to our own little spaces, like Marcel said, to the different parts of the house, uh, when we need quiet or when we need to, to, uh, get together at a lot more meals. Like you said, uh, it's been great to be able to get together and, and share meals, which was typically not the case in, uh, with busy kids are always going in one place or the other. So David, I'll ask uh, Marcel this question after. So tell me, how does this, uh, how does this affect the, you know, the day-to-day of the work you do? Like how, how has your life looked different over the last month uh, compared to what it would have looked like in, in an ordinary time? Well, personally, obviously, the, uh, you're much more restricted. You're staying at home. Uh, you're spending much more time online. Um, you're not able to see you know, extended family. Uh, not to be able to get together with friends, um, you know, so you're, I miss that part of it and all of us do. Uh, but for me, from a business side of things, uh, having a seasonal business, uh, we work remote on the business throughout the winter time and then kind of gear up for it in the, you know, starting in May. So it's been different this year because we were full, full steam ahead uh, at the beginning of March, you know, coming up with all kinds of different promotions we were going to do and working on a lot of things, or I should say probably end of February. And then as the, uh, the doubt started to creep in, we started to hit the brakes on it and start to do a lot more scenarios that we were running through as to how could we do this or how could we do that, trying to guess at, you know, what that new world would be like. I've all, and then in terms of a lot of the other things that I do, whether it's, um, advising startups or volunteering a lot of that's uh, that a lot of that was remote before but of course any of the volunteering stuff now that I do are sitting on boards and that stuff uh, is all done via zoom or webex or microsoft uh, you know the team meetings and that kind of thing so uh, yeah I think for the most part we've adjusted uh, but it's certainly certainly once the weather starts to get nicer and it did on the weekend getting outdoors is going to be really nice and I, you know, and I knew, I know David too, that you must, uh, cause your, your business is, is an outdoor business and, and I know you have, you have a lot of fun at it and, and the setting for, for Timbertop's amazing. Um, you must, uh, how much are you missing not being out there right now? Well, we, you know, we, when we walk through the course, like courses, uh, just, to check on things, uh, on a beautiful sunny day, like today or the weekend. Uh, it, it make you get that yearning to oh I can't wait to see people up in the up in the trees enjoying themselves and having a good time, uh, but then when you of course when you then sit down and think about all the aspects of the business and how things will change, um, the being in the trees part is probably the the easiest part in a way because that's what a lot of people think about because that's what you want customers to think about is the the fun part in the trees. It's all the stuff behind the scenes. And all the processes that go into it that are the things that you as a business owner are grappling with is to how would you change a lot of those processes if you have to change all of those processes you don't know it's a lot of that stuff is still unknown uh, which is kind of the reason why we wanted to take a stab at what that future could look like in terms of an environment for businesses like ours to to try to do some planning around 
And are you kind of, uh, in, in terms of your business, are you kind of on, on hold right now? Or are you keeping in touch with, with the staff that was supposed to work with you this year? Yeah. So, te- yeah, so technically we're one of those, you know, many, many businesses out there that's restricted from opening right now, uh, cause we're non-essential. Um, and I'm not sure exactly, uh, how we, you know, in which phase we would be treated in terms of being able to open. Uh, a big part of our business comes from, um, you know, a bit of the run up in the May, June timeframe in terms of weekends, usually with a lot of groups, schools, that kind of thing. So all of that's off the table. Um, and then, you know, really our big season is July and August with, you know, tourists as well as locals. Uh, we're fortunate to have a large local base. So that's a bit of a, uh, silver lining, hopefully, if we can figure this out and the province can, you know, figure out an opening for various tourism operations. So, you know, th- that side is is positive. Um, but um, yeah, just just the amount of stuff that we typically do, you have to kind of work backwards from a date in order to open. We have a number of things like inspections that we do and, and cleanup that we do and, and various processes. So not knowing when that start date is 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 even kind of difficult for us as well. And Marcel, uh, with you, how does your life look day to day, both personally, you know, and uh, in terms of your work life, uh, you know, for what you would be doing ordinarily with what's actually, what's actually going on in your life now day to day? Yeah, for me, um, some things haven't changed a lot and some things have changed drastically. I do a variety of things. Um, I'm involved in a number of boards and uh, with a number of startups. So this morning, for example, um, I spent the morning with um, a local Fredericton software company called Potential Motors. We're an automotive software and AI company. And really not a lot has changed in that company other than everyone's working from home. But we built software. We can do that remotely. We can meet online. And, you know, that's moving forward really largely unaffected. I was also on an AGM this morning of a a company that I'm an investor in that uh, called Hotspot that a lot lot of people know in in New Brunswick. And uh, so some of those things, you know, you're just not meeting in person. Uh, But I also do a lot of other things that are um, in the nonprofit sector. Uh, For example, I'm on the board of uh, World Vision Canada, which does um, really the largest humanitarian relief and development Um, charity in Canada that does international humanitarian relief and development, uh, working to help the world's most vulnerable children. And of course, everything's changed there because a lot of the fundraising initiatives are uh, through physical events, concerts, and things like that. All of that has stopped. So lots of board meetings to figure out what do we do and all that. Um, But also locally, uh, my wife and I are involved with uh, some programs for at-risk youth. All that has stopped. And we also um, help lead a, um, a camp, a kids camp, where we have about 700 kids a year in New Brunswick kids that come through called Snyder Mountain Ranch. And that has drastically changed. It shut down. All of our spring business has disappeared. Um, we do, we used to do, we did French immersion camps with the school system. That's all canceled this year. So we've had to make a number of changes there and stop our capital programs. And, and of course, um, start to try and think about summer. Is there going to be a summer? Is there not going to be a summer? So some things have drastically changed. And, um, and then I also volunteer a lot with things like I help um, immigrants with the um, newcomers with the uh, Multicultural Association who are looking for work that are in the tech world. 
And of course, no, you know, which is a really interesting thing that no one's really talked about much is immigration's on hold. And that's a really important thing for New Brunswick in terms of our population and our economy. And uh, right now there are a number of people who just arrived and of course they're looking for work and there's, you know, the employment situation has drastically changed. And so my mentoring there has just stopped because there's really not a lot to do. Yeah. So some things are very different. Other things, um, you know, I've always operated online. So in some ways I've spent hours on Zoom for years and years. So uh, some of those things haven't changed. And how uh, how how are uh, your family members all getting along at home? Well, my um, three my three kids um, all lost their jobs, and so my daughter she's the uh, theater school director for Theater New Brunswick, and she runs all the elementary, middle, high school theater programs. And of course, that's closed, and uh, very disappointing that she had a great group of kids ready to do their senior musical theater performance, which I think was supposed to happen next week. And that, uh, is, is canceled. And, um, and then my, uh, my, uh, middle son, he's a market does marketing work and he was working for a Toronto company, uh, in the construction industry and, uh, he, he got laid off as well. So he's, uh, doing some other things in the meantime. And then my youngest son, he's, um, in school. So he did have a coffee shop job, which ended, which isn't as big a deal, but he um, he's still uh, just wrapping up his studies at the moment. So for them, they're all trying to figure out what life looks like, um, you know, doing things around the house as best they can and uh, and trying to figure out the future. So what what inspired uh, the two of you to uh, to take on the, the, the project of, uh, you know, writing the, these two pieces, trying to help us, you know, map our way way out of the current situation? Well, David and I tend to text each other about a number of things that go on in the world from time to time. So we just kind of are, you know, natural thinkers about things and we're always thinking about this and that. And we tend to put a lot of energy into our local community. What is going well? What isn't going well? What can we do? We tend to like to be innovators and idea people. So I think, David, it just kind of started with us going back and forth around how are we doing in New Brunswick? What are we doing? You know, that's that's what really, I think, started it. I don't know how we got to the article. Frankly, maybe you remember. Yeah, I think it was, um, we just started to collect. We had so much stuff that we were collecting. Um, we started to create a list. And, um, and once, you know, once one of us created the list, then it was like, well, maybe we should try to turn this into something better, um, more of a, you know, a piece that we could, I guess share with others and get that same discussion happening like it was between the two of us because we figured we weren't the only two that were probably discussing this and scratching our heads and, and trying to figure out what's next uh, in that if we could find a way to collect it, organize it, uh, share it, that maybe others would uh, join in on the conversation. And it's been nice to see they have. So, and of course, reaching out to you, Mark, at Huddle and uh, you know bringing you in in saying, you know, is this something that Huddle would be interested in, in sharing? It was fantastic. So, so thank you for that. Yeah. And part of the, the impetus, I think, was that as we were discussing this, usually, generally in a lot of trends, whether it's employment or R&D or those things, we tend to be kind of, the, you know, not on the top of most lists in New Brunswick. 
We're not at the top of R&D spending. We're not at the top of population growth, you know, all these things. So we tend to struggle with things. But here, all of a sudden, we found ourselves in a, in a really world-leading uh, situation. And we started discussing, what does that mean? You know, should, is that, you know, what should we do with that? And uh, it was kind of that that triggered us to say, well, maybe there's an opportunity here that we shouldn't miss. Um, what what would that look like? So when you when you say uh, world leading, Marcel, what what do you mean? Well, if we look at you know different people will do research on things and say, okay, what is the I'll use an example. What is the research and develop the percent of spending on research and development? And you look across you know nations, and then you look across provinces, and then you might find that oh, New Brunswick spends the least in R and D, which which tends to mean okay, what do we do to get R and D spending up? You know, so we tend to be laggards in a number of indicators. What we are looking for here is, in terms of the virus, um, we're in one of the best situations in the world. You know, right now, um, if you look at a recovery rate, for example, we're at about 78% of all the cases that we've had have recovered, which is better than better than any nation in the world, better than, uh, you know, up there with uh, Korea. But you look at the U.S., they're at about 14.5% of um, their cases have recovered because it's growing. So if we're in that good of a situation for, you know, whether it's luck or smart things that we did, what should we be doing with that to try and help our economy to um, recover as, you know, as, as, good, as good as possible? Yes, and just to add to that, I also been tracking um, every um, the the caseload per million, uh, or the number of cases per million in not only the, the provinces, which I've noticed it's been said in a number of different publications that we're the we have the the lowest number of cases per million in Canada in terms of provinces. I think uh, only one territory is better than us if you include the territories, but I've also been tracking. Uh, how we even compare to the the U.S. in in terms of the states and even some of the states that haven't necessarily had as many cases, and we've been consistently ahead of them for probably almost two weeks as well. Um, so, like in North America, we're in a very unique position that way. And I also noticed today Ted McDonald from the MBIRDT, uh, one of the the uh, think tank slash research arms at UNB, had uh, put out another study and. Um, was was basically saying, you know, what if our numbers, you know, and where our numbers should be, let's say this week, midweek, if we had the same, uh, we we're in the same situation as South Korea, which is a best in class, and we're actually below those predictions as well. So we're coming in even better than the best of class uh, in South Korea. So we're in fantastic shape. Kudos to everyone uh, mm -hmm. in New Brunswick that's, you know, hunkered down and social distanced and everything else. And kudos to uh, Dr. Russell and the premier and the whole team behind the scenes and all the frontline workers, everyone that's really uh, focused on this uh, because uh, they've produced some amazing results thus far for this province. In, in the conversations that were happening between the two of you, and I know, uh, David, you described it as kind of, uh, you know, uh, talking back and forth, texting and, and, and sort of compiling kind of a, a list of things that were on your mind. Um, 
at what point did did you, did you start to develop this framework? And this is probably a good opportunity to ask you about you know the whole notion of the hammer and the dance and what does that mean and 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 how did that uh, enter into your thinking and framing around all this? You're gonna you're gonna take that, David? Or no. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I thought he said I thought he asked you. No, no, no. By all means, Marcel. Okay. I th- all right. Put it this way: one of the things Marcel was really good at, uh, perhaps it's his engineering mind. Um, but he's really good at taking a lot of unstructured data and putting it into a really good and easy, under, easily to understand structure. He's also a pretty good storyteller as well. So, um, Marcel, you know, um, the two of us actually had, had traded back and forth on the hammer and the dance, both loved the article. Uh, so that was kind of in the back of our mind, but I think uh, I'll leave it to Marcel to kind of explain how he saw taking the all these the information that we had collected and put it into some sort of format that others could uh, discuss. Yeah, I think that the hammer and the dance got a lot of attention around the world. It was a great article, but I think the the interesting thing about it is this: the fact that this virus is not going away for a very long time, and so it described these two phases where, you know, the hammer being the phase where you do everything possible to suppress the virus. And once you've achieved suppression, then you move into this long period of time where you have to do this dance. And the dance is uh, where you have to kind of, like you're dancing with a partner, you have to lead and respond. And so sometimes you're moving forward and sometimes you're reacting to what the other person's doing. And so you're in this phase where you're making these moves, uh, but then the virus is responding and you have to kind of read and react. And uh, we know that we're in a position where, um, you know, as a globally, we're vulnerable until there's a vaccine. So we have to do this dance, but we know we can't stay locked down for the next you know, 18 months. So we have to open things up, reopen the economy. And what we started to discuss was what does the hammer and the dance look like for us? Because we have some unique uh, characteristics. You know, one, because we've done such a great job in suppressing the virus, we're vulnerable because we don't have that herd immunity. You know, in New York, uh, Governor Cuomo is talking about starting to do antibody testing to see what is the percentage of the population that's been infected. Other places in the world have done that, and where they've done it, they found that the infection rate is higher than what the test cases show. Um, but in but in in those cases, it's higher, but it's not materially higher. So we cited a study in Germany that showed that they were getting a fifteen percent infection rate. Well, that's still you know. 85% that are not infected. So in New Brunswick, you know, some could say, well, should we go do all this antibody testing? Well, we already know that we have a high degree of vulnerability. So what does that mean for us in the dance? We also know we have a very incredible rate of suppression. You know, we've not overwhelmed our healthcare system. Um, our hospitalization rates are low. We've had no deaths, which is, you know, thankfully and hopefully that continues. So what does that mean? And so we started to kind of overlay that model and say, what are all the questions that we need to answer? And the other thing that we're seeing is that there's many businesses and individuals who are asking the question, what does the future look like? And if I could know what the future looks like, 
than I might be able to plan. And it's if you're if you're in a crisis, you know, when you've got a situation like New York where you just you just are overwhelmed and your resources are overwhelmed, it's very difficult to plan. But we're in a situation where we should be in a position to plan and we should be in a position to give some uh, headlights to our businesses and to individuals to say, should things go this way, um, this is what we will do. And that just gives so much information to businesses to make smart decisions. And, you know, things like right now, if I'm a business, well, should I stop promoting my business? Should I promote my business? Should I lay people off? Should I hire that summer student? Should I stop taking bookings? You know, I just look at our our camp as an example. Well, there's people still booking for summer camp. Should we turn that off? Should we keep booking it? Should we take their deposits? Should we not take, you know, there's so many questions and businesses can make better decisions if they have headlights. So we put this together to get everyone thinking about our situation, but also to encourage our community and our leaders to develop a plan because we don't think that um, this uncertainty, the uncertainty that the virus necessarily brings is not an excuse to say we can't plan. Great leaders, just like entrepreneurs, we've, you know, we, David and I have built businesses in extreme uncertainty. And what you do as a leader in uncertainty is you develop plans, but plans that can adjust and adapt. And that's what we're advocating for here. What was the the moment where you decided to, you know, to jump in and write this? Because I know obviously we've been having um, you know, sort of blanket coverage of this in the press and, and daily press conferences with, you know, with, with the premiers and, you know, New Brunswick and, and, and Nova Scotia. Um, and, you know, here you are, you know, two, two business leaders in, in the province. Um, what did you see as your role to, in terms of jumping in and, and, and being a spark for this kind of conversation about going forward? Well, I think um, Marcel, probably covered most of that with what he just said, but I, you know, I might add that, um, I guess for both of us, um, we kind of lean toward action, um, when it comes to things that we're involved in, in the community. So, um, I think for us, it was, if, if, you know, we're going to pull this information together and it can help, uh, provide guidance for, at least kind of temporary guidance or at least get people thinking about, you know, the kinds of decisions that they're going to have to make along with ourselves, like, because we're both small business owners as well to try to figure out, you know, what we're going to do over the next number of months. Uh, we thought that was a good idea to share. Uh, the other thing I think that's a, a bit of a, uh, a byproduct of this too, hopefully is that, uh, by us, uh, throwing out a, I'll call it a trial balloon in terms of a draft plan, uh, it allows uh, for lots of discussion and for whoever is writing the actual plan within government to see the various reactions, uh, to see the other good ideas which have popped up on so many different uh, uh, Facebook posts or LinkedIn shares or you name it. Uh, we've tr- whatever ones were public that we can see, we generally have tried to to read them and and absorb them and and jump in on the conversation when we could. So hopefully. It also creates kind of a, a bit of an a, of a a roadmap for those writing the plan. And I guess the third thing is, 
uh, I think it also helped show just how complex this kind mm -hmm. of opening the economy plan is going to be, uh, both from trying to balance it with uh, so many unknowns on the healthcare side and on how the virus will you know, pop up here and there, but also just with um, the uncertainty in terms of whether demand will be there um, for certain businesses when they open up again. Will people still be in shell shock uh, and or in a mode of, um, no, I'm not going to do anything until there's a vaccine? Or will they want to you know, go out and support various businesses? All of this is unknown. There's never, I don't think that I've ever been in any situation before when it comes to business cases, when you think of the sheer number of unknowns that are out there and trying to come up with plans uh, in order to somehow adapt to every situation. So I think the, the idea was, how do we get this out so that uh, at least puts a stake in the ground and allows people to hopefully benefit from that um, and move us closer to the ultimate goal, which is to have an actual plan that we can all work from. And uh, honestly, it, that plan will probably, just like we said with ours, it's not perfect. It probably will need to change. And that's okay because, you know, no person can write a perfect plan in an environment like this. And everyone's going to have to be patient and be willing to uh, flex uh, as we go through this whole thing together. What I would add to is that David, for years, has been a longtime advocate of citizen leadership and that our job is not just to kind of criticize and complain or be, you know, consumers of uh, what the government does, but it's our job to co-lead. And I think that's part of this philosophy that in this situation, you could easily see how people can sit there and go, you know, well, we don't like this decision. We don't like that decision. And by doing this, as David mentioned, to, to reveal the complexity of it all maybe helps everyone appreciate all of the factors that go into it. Um, but also uh, part of citizen leadership is, you know, kind of creating social license. And by putting, you know, it's a lot easier for us to put out a framework when it's a theoretical one than when the government has to put out a plan that's a real one. And being able to put this out there and have um, others see the reaction to it helps to kind of gauge the temperature and get input from everyone. So for example, we had a lot of, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in a minute, but one of the hot button issues was around education and the opening of schools. And, um, you know, the dialogue around that will hopefully be useful to help inform the decisions. And so we don't want to just sit here and complain. We want to help. And so that's why we put the framework together. We're trying to stimulate the discussion and get everyone to you know, kind of work out the details because it is complex. Can you can you walk us through just um, you know some some of the some of the uh, elements of that plan that you sort of put forward? The uh, the draft plan. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the the first article. What we were really doing there is advocating for a plan, and we were saying that um, it's really important to even though we might not be able to put dates on it, we, we did put some dates, theoretical dates on ours, but more importantly, we put criteria. So we said, okay, there would be criteria. And once that criteria is met, that's when you would move to the next uh, phase of the plan. Uh, 
And based on our data as it stands today, that could look like this date. And so we put together, and interestingly, when we published this, it happened to be, I think, on the same day that the U.S. government came out with their guidelines. Um, and, you know, we didn't have that. Uh, we wrote this before that came out, but it happened to have some similarities, which was interesting. Um, but we talked about the current phase that we are in as the hammer phase, and there are some different recommendations out there. We looked at the World Health Organization recommendations. We looked at some other bodies. The one we quoted was the um, AEI um, document that um, um, was called the National Coronavirus Response, a Roadmap to Recovery. And they had a number of criteria in there. And one of them was a 14-day reduction in net new cases added, which for us were actually long past that 14 days, but you can see a lot of the other geographies in the world are looking at when they talk about uh, coming over the mountain and the curves tending down, the first curve that tends down is the curve in net new cases. So it means that we're adding less new cases per day than we did yesterday, but there's still an overall increase in cases. So it's kind of an early indicator and so we said, well, that's the guideline after 14 days of that. Um, but then we could go even more conservative and say, how about 14 days after you've had actually a net reduction in active cases? And, you know, we're actually approaching that now. We've had a, a great trend down. Um, and so we said, well, you know, by the, by the end of it, the month, we'll definitely have crossed both of those metrics. And that would make sense to start phase two. So long story short, we developed five phases. Phases two, three, and four are really the opening up phases. Phase five is the life is back to normal. And so the next three phases are what's really important. And we just laid out a number of things to consider. And one of the things that uh, we uh, talked about are some kind of fundamental assumptions that go into it. And the first one was with regard to our borders. And if you think about um, the situation... We have a great situation in New Brunswick, but we have hotspots all around us in Quebec and in uh, Massachusetts and New York. So one of the biggest risks for us is the virus coming into the province from the outside. And so the assumption in the plan is we said that the early stages keep the border closed and continue to maintain travel restrictions. People entering the province as they have to today have to self-isolate for 14 days, that kind of thing. And so that was one of the big assumptions that that's really by far the biggest risk. The second one is we we decided that we'll make this plan with the assumption that we reopen schools and daycare centers. Part of that is there's obviously the connection between schools, daycares, and returning back to work for working families. And uh, and then we talked about the widespread use of protective measures, you know, masks, distancing, thermometer checks, all these things that you see a number of different countries doing. We're going to need to figure things out in this context um, for quite some time. So um, we're going to widely adopt these measures, which uh, we haven't even really adopted even during the hammer, during the lockdown. And then, of course, is our government's capacity to continue to do testing and contact tracing and monitoring of quarantines and just being on top of 
every case that breaks out. And so we took those principles and through it, broke things down through uh, the next three phases, which is a slowly progressive opening up. And we just threw that out there to say, this is one model of how it could look. What do you think? Is something seem too soon for you? Something, you know, requires another uh, prerequisite that we missed? What are all the variables? And we just wanted to kind of put something out there as a discussion starter. And that's how, that's what it ended up looking like. So just uh, in terms of a couple of those touch points, um, so in, in your plan, in that uh, your proposed plan, when, when would the schools reopen? I think so, we had the schools. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, David. Oh, yeah. So uh, we had the schools opening in the second phase, so earlier. Um, and we pointed to phase two phase different... Phase three. Oh, phase three. Sorry. Yeah. Um, we pointed to two um, articles, one talking about the situation and how Taiwan has uh, managed to keep schools open for the most part. They had a bit of a, a period where they had uh, an extended break and then came back. And then we pointed also to another model in Europe um, in terms of, I believe it was Denmark. So, um, so there was many ways that you could gradually uh, phase uh, classes back in, uh, in both those cases, and then just the various numbers of protective measures that would have to go in place. Uh, what was interesting was, uh, like Marcel said earlier, the education point of putting it in phase three was um, probably the, had the most feedback on it. Um, there's so many things uh, that we heard from bus drivers, we heard from teachers, we heard from parents, um, we heard from all these different angles about, you know, how you'd possibly do that with, with so many different things with younger kids or with older kids, um, that it would definitely be something now with that kind of feedback that the province would really have to think through. I mean, the other thing about it too, is that even if schools did open, uh, as pointed out by some parents is that, you know, some parents may not feel comfortable sending their kids back. So, there's that aspect, um, the fact that could schools uh, put in uh, distancing measures, uh, have protective, uh, you know, everyone having a mask as an example, um, how would they be bused to and from, you know, in buses, of course, they're all sitting beside each other, would there have to be more buses, but it's not like there is more buses necessarily, would you have to have staggered classes, start times, um, would younger kids need to go back? Um, but maybe say kids that can stay at home based on their age, uh, were still at home and they would do stuff, uh, remotely continue to do that. Uh, there was so many very, as very aspects of that. Um, at the same time, of course, the province also has to think about, well, all these same concerns would also be concerns in September. Uh, I guess the one advantage having listened to all the feedback is I'd say the province would probably have a bit of advantage if they can somehow, um, manage to open up the economy uh, and not and have uh, hopefully not as big a demand on people coming back to work, which is possible based on the fact that maybe the demand for services will be it's will be kind of a slow start. So in that case, maybe not everyone's going back uh, to work right away. So maybe you know half or a quarter or a third of the people are going back and they kind of gradually ramp up. Um, if that's the case, then there may be a way to bridge until the summertime um, and get through the school year without necessarily coming back in terms of having that demand on 
parents being able to go back to work as an example. Um, then the advantage would be you have two months or for that matter, you have four months uh, between now and September or four or five months to work on various physical measures that would may have to be in place or in various new processes new procedures and so on and so forth to even think about, let's say, opening up uh, schools in September or to continue to do remote learning at that point too. So there's a lot of prep time that can go into that as well. And the, I guess the other advantage would be the fact that you'll be able to see what happens in the jurisdictions that do open in schools. Does that affect, did it, did it increase the spread or did it not? Um, did it, um, you know, did par all parents send their kids back to school or did they not? Uh, did distance learning work? Uh, have What are some of the new best practices from that? So education is just one piece of it, but as you can see, it's an extremely complex um, uh, situation for anyone writing a plan as to how to make it work uh, and work in just about every situation while understanding that it plays a role in the overall context of an economy and in a society opening more and more uh, over the next weeks and months. Yeah, one thing that uh, came to mind as we were hearing all this feedback to me was that um, a lot of a lot of it was around the lines of, well, do you realize how hard this would be or how hard that would be? So, for example, do you realize how hard it would be to um, have social distancing, you know, on a bus when there's this many kids on the bus or how hard it would be when the kids are all going in and out of the same door? And I think that this is a really good discussion because what happens is we have to remember this dance is not just one month. It's one plus year, maybe more. So when we look at September, I don't think anyone hopes that we cancel the entire school year next year. And so in some ways we have to figure out the hard things. And it's like in business, you know, we'd often say, oh, we want to do this. And we'd have engineers come back and go, this is really hard. And we'd be good because the harder it is, the more value we create hard things are upon us. And so just because things are hard um, doesn't mean we should say we can't do it. It means we have to figure out, you know, they're going to be inconvenient. They're going to be expensive. In some cases, we'll need more resources. In some cases, we'll need to modify things. But we need to figure it out because we're in this for a, a, quite a while. So our thinking with um, the schools is, is there anything that, you know, as David mentioned, that you could um, benefit from by learning early. And when we look at the situation overall, you know, we're down to 26 or so active cases in New Brunswick. I think our risk is far greater this summer if we allow, you know, tourism than if we, you know, were to put kids back in school because um, bringing the virus in from outside is a, is, appears to be a much more risky situation. Um, but we know there'll be lots of calls for that, you know, to try and reopen that part of the economy. And in our model, we said, well, you know what, we're probably going to have, not going to have a tourist season in summer 2020, other than a local tourist season. You know, maybe we open some provincial borders between PEI and New Brunswick and all that, but maybe we don't encourage tourism. Well, that's a tough decision for anyone in that business but is that one that we have to make um, versus on the schools? And so I think whether it's 
back to school this year are back to school in September, we still have, I think we could do a whole, you know, podcast that are whole, whole research area on education alone on what does it look like to turn the schools back on whenever we do it. Now, I do know that this is one that you guys have gotten a, a lot of feedback on and, and would love to hear, hear some of that. Cause I, I, I just wanted to say too, and I've said, I've said this to, to David in conversation um, with him since we first uh, published this piece that when I, when I originally got the, you know, the email from you guys um, seeing if we were interested in, in publishing this um, of course, you know, I was, I was, was thrilled, you know, that you'd reached out and, and wanted to, um, to do something with us. Uh, but at the same time, um, I have to honestly say, you know, having, having been doing this for a few years now, I was, uh, really pleasantly surprised, uh, by the reaction to this. Um, you know, these, these two pieces, uh, have been, you know, the most popular ones that we've we published this year now, uh, you know, we're, uh, and I've, I've shared this with you before, we're, you know, we're at more than 80,000 page views between the two articles. Like, so I, I even expected there to be, you know, a lot of interest in the first one. Um, and then maybe less interest, mm-hmm. uh, in the second one, uh, not because of the subject, but just because, you know, you have the, the first part and the second part, and sometimes the first part can be, you know, uh, far more popular and the opposite turned out to be the case. Uh, you know, the, the first one that you wrote part one was, ex- you know, was extremely well read on the site and shared. And, uh, and then the second one, even more so, you know, and, and I was the way I'd be interested in how you guys see that, but, uh, just from, as an editor, you know, we, we had spent a month, um, you know, publishing a lot of stories about, uh, you know, the initial weeks of this and, you know, and, and businesses having to close and schools having to close and, and trying to manage, uh, you know, a, a spike in cases and, and the health risks. And along come, you know, your two stories that start to, you know, chart a path forward out of this. And I personally, I actually underestimated the public appetite for that kind of, uh, you know, look forward, that kind of like positive look towards this, you know. So here we are in the middle of this and we still are. Uh, but here's why we have to look ahead and, and, you know, and here's a rough framework for that. One of the comments, uh, I'm sure you have some thoughts, Dave. I just get it. One of the comments that got me most excited, someone said, this gives me hope. And I think part of the uptake in readership is that, um, you know, there's a lot of things that aren't super hopeful right now. And when something looks like a forward-looking, here's how we get back to, um, you know, back to business, back to uh, educating our kids, things like that, it's a hopeful thing. And so I think it just underlines um, people's desire to have some forward-looking outlook. And I think that, you know, great, great leaders create clarity, even in uncertain times. And I think that that's what we need is some continued leadership to say, here's some clarity in the murky, you know, yes, we're never going to have hundred percent clarity, but let me, let me clear the fog up a little bit. And people find that very hopeful. Yeah, David. I think the other thing that was uh, encouraging was to see that it, of all the comments and, and uh, 
threads and, and shares that we saw, I would say it was 99% plus was always positive in terms of the, you know, building on ideas or in a, a very civil way of, of discussing the various issues. If someone was concerned about something, they'd find a way to kind of, you know, be very civil about it and, and want to discuss it and share it. And so the, the, the attitude was also really, really encouraging. Um, I think that people realize that we're all in this together. This is extremely complex. No one's perfect. No one's an expert. Uh, everyone's trying to do their best. Everyone's trying to help one another. So, you know, the, the fact that everyone was so positive uh, in terms of, of providing, you know, new ideas or critiques of what things could be different in the plan, I think was very encouraging. In terms of some of that feedback you got, but what uh, what stood out? I mean, because you put some dates around, you know, we could open schools by this time, or you know, we could start opening up our restaurants by this time. What was what were some of the more interesting uh, pieces of feedback you got? Well, I think one thing I, there was lots of really interesting feedback. Sometimes, if a person had a background in science or research, uh, they gave us uh, their cut on whether you know how things might progress, whether the timeline was too potentially too aggressive because based on like the feedback loop that would have to be there uh, in order to determine whether a new kind of like re, um, removing restrictions around something, um, how, you know, how long would that take to come back to provide, you know, that feedback loop. So that was interesting. Um, I think uh, one of the other things too was just the, um, you know, with the, with the timeline that we had, um, Again, these were just stabs in the dark, right? Um, and in some cases, what we were trying to do as well is to show that so many other things would need to take place or have be set up and be ready in order to get to the next stage. So sometimes it wasn't necessarily about the date itself. It would be like, wow, if that date was three weeks away and we need to have X, 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 and you know, X, Y, Z and all that stuff done, then do we have do we have that figured out? No, we don't. Oh, oh. Well, then we better start figuring it out now. And in some cases, it's supply chain stuff too. So if it was like I don't know, let's say temperature checks. If businesses needed to do temperature checks in some cases, or maybe maybe all businesses have, or maybe some businesses have to do that before before people go in, customers go in. Well, where are all those temperature? You know, the forehead thermometers going to come from? Uh, I know that. Um, I tried to, or I have ordered some, but they, there were none in North America that were available. They were all available from China. And I, I, there's somewhere here between there and here at this point, I don't know where, and I don't know how long it's going to take. Well, that's obviously an issue. So just like, um, you know, nationally, we had to figure out where, where, how can we produce more masks? How can we produce more ventilators? It could be, how do we produce more like Canadian companies? How do we produce more thermometers, digital thermometers. Um, you know, so, and in speaking of that too, like if it is, I know all the PPE equipment has been going to, to the hospital and we need to make sure that that is got a massive buffer for whatever they need. It's priority number one. At the same time, we want our, we want our, um, our customers, our staff to be equally protected if they're going to be in certain situations, which of course need to be figured out going forward in the plan. So again, that supply chain needs to be able to step up and not just also just 
apply uh, supply the the healthcare side, but potentially, and maybe it's different versions of things, or maybe not. Um, you know, maybe it's masks, maybe it's homemade masks, maybe it's more N95s, maybe it's uh, face shields as well. You know, in certain situations, hard to say. But again, by putting a date, by putting some phases, it allowed people to kind of start to go, "Wow, I think we've got to get on top of some stuff and work in parallel." on this and it's not necessarily a sequential you know we'll do this and then once we figure that out then we'll try to figure out the next stage because if that's the case it will push the timeline out quite a ways when if we can be working in parallel on things uh, proactively with a plan in place i think we can hit those stages when we're ready in terms of the healthcare side saying we're ready we can switch to that then the business side and everything else will be ready at the same time I'm curious to know what you guys are hearing from, you know, because a lot of people, businesses have shut down or lost revenue. Um, you know, employees have seen hours reduced or they've lost their jobs. Um, what, what have you been, he- since you published these pieces, what have you been hearing from them about about your plan, their own thoughts and feelings about it? Well, I think the number one thing is, and it reiterates the point of our first article, is they'd like some notice. They'd like to know, they'd like to be able to make plans. So many businesses are on the, on the edge, you know, they know they're going to have a terrible year. They're going to have losses. They're trying to figure out how they're going to eat those losses. Their debt's going to increase. They're going to have to recover that in future years, but they can make decisions now. You know, if I'm a a dental hygienist or have a hair salon, and if I can get a sense that, well, I'm likely opening in phase three, which is going to happen uh, three weeks after phase two, provided that the numbers don't increase. Well, then that's probably around this time. Okay, so I think what I'll do is this. Whereas if I know that's going to be September or October, then I'm going to make some different decisions. I may not take on debt. I may have to let go of my rent or my facility and you know, come, come out the other side at some other date versus if I think I might open in a month, but then it becomes two months and it becomes three months that could bankrupt the business. So the number one thing is they want to know, they want some headlights, a little bit of a view as to where things are going to go. That that's largely for businesses that have a fairly significant local component in our economy. And of course that, that includes, everything from hotels and retail and restaurants and entertainment and all, all those areas. Other businesses that are internationally focused, well, they, they have to look at, you know, the global economic uh, climate and what's developing there. And, you know, they have to make their own decisions. But that's, that's the, big, the biggest thing that we're hearing is people really eager to want to be able to get some headlights. Has this given them, uh, you know, a sense of optimism or, or a way to look forward, do you find? Well, I had, a, I had a number of different people contact me, um, either emails or or phone calls, uh, specifically after reading the plan and, and wanting to talk. Uh, I still have a couple more that have asked to talk today. So uh, I think people want to, to uh, number one, they're, they're feeling like they're getting more information, which kind of takes some of the tension off in terms of they have at least something to um, use as a, a sample plan to kind of say, okay, if it's something like this, or maybe it's a little bit different, but at least it's something I can, 
I can take my own planning and try to overlay on top of. We all know it's going to change because this is a draft. It's not written by the actual folks writing the plan, but it gives them at least kind of like all the dis- different aspects of what they may have to think through. Um, I just happened to uh, see a plan today that was put out by um, uh, a group uh, that focuses or, or is kind of representing uh, climbing gyms, so indoor climbing gyms. So I read through that and they, they've started to put down things they think they will have to tackle or things that they will have to change. And it's a very exhaustive list, but it's not all inclusive yet either because there's a number of things that they still don't know based on um, what each jurisdiction around the world will pick in terms of the types of restrictions that they'll have, right? And when those restrictions will come off and what they'll expect to see a business do uh, in order to, um, you know, mitigate risk. So, um, you know, but what was interesting about it is being able to read that, I was able to say, even though it's not the industry we're in, it gave me all kinds of kind of checklists in my own mind that said, okay, well, we've thought of that one, or we have thought of this one. Oh, there's one we haven't thought of, but that's a really interesting way of doing it. So I think the more data people have, um, in terms of, you know, business planning, the least it's, it's, it's still going to be very anxiety ridden because you still don't know what the market's going to be like and whether customers are going to come back or, you know, how long this is going to last. And, you know, all these, you're going to be able to make the payments on rent and all the other things like Marcel said, but at least it gives you something to anchor on in the horizon so that you can shoot for something. You guys covered today, Huddle covered the uh, Conference Board of Canada's uh, forecast. Um, And uh, I took a look at that quickly this morning and I saw the numbers um, for, you know, the contraction of the economy expected to shrink, shrink, I think, 20.6% in the second quarter. Um, but I like that Todd Crawford, uh, who's the associate director um, from New Brunswick, was quoted in, in your article, and he said, provinces that have a defined plan that they can communicate to individuals and businesses will be in a stronger position to come out the other side with much of their economy intact as possible. And I kind of underlined two words. One is a defined plan, and two is communicate. Because I think you can have a plan, you can say, yeah, you know, we're planning, but the communication of the plan is what's really important to get, you know, get that feedback, get readiness so that we can uh, mitigate losses. And I think that will help to, you know, get people back to work as soon as possible. And, you know, we have other things we have to consider, even from a health perspective. You, You look at this and it's not just about the economy, but you know, we have mental health concerns and all these things that all have to be balanced with the, with the virus. And so we all know, and I, I think that, you know, our, our leaders have done an incredible job. I think that um, uh, Dr. Russell and Premier Higgs have done an incredible job leading through this and communicating um, with, you know, where we're at. And I think that now's the time to be developing that next wave of headlights um, for our community to be able to uh, to plan. And, and I think we stand the chance in New Brunswick to, I think for a number of reasons, to come out of this relatively strongly because um, of the position that we're in. If we don't wait, you know, for everybody else to develop their plans and we just follow along, which is an easy thing to do because we're small, we say, well, let's just see what 
BC does or Quebec does or Ontario does or, or the U.S. does, um, in which case we'll be, you know, kind of coming up the, from the, the end of the line. But, but we have the opportunity to lead, but we want to be wise and listen to our experts and all of that and um, balance things. I think we could come out of it quite uh, in quite good shape. Plus, we have another, another uh, set of dynamics that give us some advantages. You know, we're not, our economy is not as impacted by the low price of oil. In some cases, it benefits us, whereas, you know, Alberta and BC are kind of double hit right now with, um, with the oil economy. And then another disadvantage of ours usually is we have a disproportionately high number of government employees, which, which usually is a, is a bit of a, a damper on the economy in the sense that the, you know, the other jobs have to fund those jobs. But in our case, in this current situation, it actually will help us because, you know, most government employees are, are remain employed. So we have less lower percentage of things relatively that have been turned off. So we should be able to crank them up a little easier. So I think we're in good shape if we do the right things. Well, thanks a lot, guys. Uh, I really appreciate this chat. Uh, David, do you, do you have any, any final thoughts? No, other than the fact that I would say that from the years that I've been working with various people within government and various entrepreneurs in the community, uh, citizens uh, that have been involved in volunteer activities. Uh, we have a, a tremendous asset in that here in New Brunswick, um, we all are like one degree of separation from each other. Um, we we know each other. We can reach out and and offer assistance or reach out and ask for ideas or assist uh, help when trying to solve problems. I think that's a tremendous advantage that we have. And, you know, um, we've seen it over and over again that New Brunswickers can be extremely innovative uh, when faced with, uh, with problems uh, that they need to solve. And uh, I have no doubt that we can step up to this as well. And I would just echo that um, in some strange way, this virus has shown just how great of a place New Brunswick is to live. And I think this is a time when um, we can show our character and um, it's an opportunity for us to all add our voices to be supportive of our leaders. You know, we see what's happening in the U S with these uh, protests and all of that. But I think here um, we can be supportive of our leaders and we can co-lead by uh, bringing forward ideas and our energy and wanting to move forward together. And I think we're just in a, in a really good situation, you know, because of those things. Right. Well, thank you very much, because I, I really do appreciate this. And uh, I hope I can bring you guys back for part two. We're all into part ones and part twos, I think. <laughs> <laughs> We're on part three now. <laughs> thanks, Mark. All right. Well, thanks very much, guys. I appreciate talking to you. Thanks, Mark. You have been listening to the very first episode of Huddle's new podcast, Home Office. Thanks for tuning in. And thank you, David and Marcel, for being our very first guests. We look forward to chatting with you on a future episode. And you can read David and Marcel's articles on the Huddle website. That's huddle.today, www.huddle.today. And that should be also be your uh, daily source of business news and analysis for the Maritimes. So please visit the site regularly. And uh, on the actually homepage, you can actually sign up for our newsletter. And every day uh, in your inbox at 7 a.m., 
you will receive uh, an email with links to all the latest business and news, business news and analysis from around the Maritimes. Uh, so please do go check that out and sign up for that newsletter. And uh, thank you again for tuning in to uh, Home Office, which is produced by me, Mark Legere, Sharice Letson, and Tyler McLean. Talk to you next week.